a closer look at the news and events affecting Prince George. Welcome to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. It's the Friday edition, which means we have hot topics with the Friday panel coming up in less than a half hour's time. But to start today's show, it is this morning's front burner from CBC News. This is a tragedy, uh, and sometimes uh, the law, the criminal law, is not adequate. That's Kentucky Attorney General Daniel Cameron announcing that no charges will be brought against Louisville police for the killing of Breonna Taylor back in March. Only one of three officers involved was indicted, facing three counts of wanton endangerment, and that's for shooting into the home of Taylor's neighbor. Shortly after the decision was released, protesters filled the streets of Louisville to express their anger, frustration, and sadness over the decision. Today we explain this latest chapter in the calls for justice for Breonna Taylor and why her name continues to be a rallying cry for those fighting against police brutality in America. I'm Josh Block. This is Frontburner. I'm joined by Philip Bailey, politics reporter with USA Today in Louisville, who's been covering Breonna Taylor's case for a long time. Hello, Philip. Hey, Josh. How are you? I'm well. I want to ask you before we we dig into the grand jury decision and, and the reaction to it, tell me a little bit about Breonna Taylor, the, the 26-year-old emergency room technician who, who was killed in March. Right. Breonna Taylor was on the front lines of the COVID-19 crisis uh, when really all of us were sort of forced in our homes in the early days of the, of the pandemic. Uh, she is someone who people describe as friends and family, as someone who was very caring, who would do her best if she saw someone in need. Uh, there was a gentleman in a wheelchair who, who did some physical therapy after being shot, and, and Taylor was his physical therapist, and he said, you know, if it wasn't for her, I probably would be in worse condition than I am now. She always mm. called me, contacted me, and, and made me feel hopeful about my future and my mobility and my life. Um, but she was also a young woman who sort of was discovering and, and figuring out where she wanted to go uh, ahead with her, her life and her future with her boyfriend, Kenneth Walker, who talked about getting married um, and, and certainly was someone who was trying to, I guess, break the cycle of poverty uh, and, and lack of education in, in her own family and sort of break out of that, uh, out of that cycle. Born, of a, born to a teenage mother, sort of all the, the basic struggles that come along with that, but someone who certainly... Uh, would be considered a productive member of society. Hmm. On Wednesday, a Kentucky grand jury announced it was not charging anyone for the police killing of Brianna. It was met by a pretty swift public response. We're talking to you now on Thursday afternoon, but what's it been like on the streets of Louisville since the decision came down? I don't think disappointment captures the sentiment. The decision was announced that the grand jury was only indicting one officer, former officer, uh, Brent Hankinson, who had already been fired by Louisville police, and really for the lowest level of charges possible, wanton endangerment. Not wanton endangerment of shooting in Breonna Taylor's apartment, not for shooting her, but for shooting in an adjacent apartment. Hmm. Um, the feeling that many people are saying that, you know, drywall got more justice than Breonna Taylor. The re- immediate reaction from folks who are protesting for 100 plus days now out of Jefferson Square Park here in Louisville, the epicenter of sort of the, the government, metro government facilities, was, is that it? 
Is that all that we're going to see here? That concludes the business of the grand jury sitting for Jefferson County in September 2020. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. You may be excused. Is that the only Um, And it is. Daniel Cameron has made it clear that there won't be any other criminal prosecution involved in this case. Justice is not often easy. It does not fit the mold of public opinion. And it does not conform to shifting standards. Um, you already had one of the other officers, Sergeant John Mattingly, write this sort of scathing email to rank-and-file officers that was discovered by the media, by Snooze, uh, discovered it first, saying how everything we did that night on March 13th was legally, morally, and ethically right. Um, and, and Cameron saying, you know, I understand people aren't going to be pleased with the decision. I'm not basing it upon a motion. I'm basing it upon the law. The criminal law is not meant... Uh, to respond uh, to every sorrow and grief, uh, and that is that is true here. The officers were fired upon by Taylor's boyfriend, Kenneth Walker, and they were defending themselves. The hmm. feeling isn't just disappointment. It is underscoring a lot of folks who are saying this is just another example of how African-American life is not valued by the system, um, and that it took all of this just to get a wanton endangerment charge, which carries, what, one, two to five years at best. What kind of response did we hear from uh, Brianna's family and and their lawyer? There hasn't been an official statement uh, sent by Brianna Taylor's mother, Tamika Palmer. She was invited to the press conference. Mm -hmm. Um, She did have a chance to speak with the attorney general. I can tell you that speaking to her uh, family lawyers for the Taylor family, devastated, shocked, shell-shocked is the description the Tamika uh, of the lawyers that Tamika Palmer had to uh, the announcement that only Brett Hankinson would be charged. Even though they had just won this $12 million settlement from the city, there's no acknowledgement in that civil settlement, that $12 million, of any wrongdoing by the city. And there isn't any acknowledgement on the criminal side either. It's almost as if nothing happened, right? No one is at fault, basically, at this point for Breonna Taylor's death, not civilly and certainly not criminally. Right. I mean, that, that settlement happened just earlier this month, and she did speak at the time of that settlement. And what did she say back then about her hopes for the, the grand jury indictment, the investigation into, into the police officers that killed her daughter? Tamika Palmer had posted a, a very heartfelt message to Daniel Cameron on Instagram recently, making the comment about, you know, if your mother had to live through this, what would she do? Can you see my daughter as your own? Can you see her as one of as your sister, as a member of your community. Tamika Palmer was certainly hopeful, right? I mean, she was certainly hoping that there would be more than this. As significant as today is, it's only the beginning of getting full justice for Brianna. We must not lose focus on what the real job is. And with that being said, it's time to move forward with the criminal charges because she deserves that and much more. Her beautiful spirit and personality is working through all of us on the ground. So please continue to say her name, Brianna Taylor. That's part one of this morning's Frontburner from CBC News here on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Part two coming up in a moment here on After 9. 
Tim Ewell here reminding you to tune in every Thursday at 12.30 for Entertainment 90, your weekly review of entertainment locally and everywhere else. We'll be reviewing everything from movies and television to theater and music. What's hot and what's not and helping you get the most of your entertainment dollar. That's Entertainment 90 every Thursday at 12.30, only on your community radio station, 93.1 CFIS. And until then, stay entertained, my friends. Massage Place Stadium has reopened. The track is currently available for public access from 6 a.m. to 9 p.m., seven days per week, except when the facility is booked by a user group. Entry is only available from the Massey Drive entrance, and users are reminded to avoid any construction zones and asked to maintain physical distancing between groups. The city is also working with local sport organizations developing safe return-to-play plans on city fields and ball diamonds. Full details are available through the city's website, princegeorge.ca. Nominations are still being accepted for the Premier's Awards for Indigenous Youth Excellence in Sport. The award provides a unique opportunity to celebrate the outstanding achievements of Indigenous athletes who excel in performance sport and who are using those experiences to shape their future. Full details and nomination forms are available through ispark.ca. That's I-S-P-A-R-C dot C-A. The Indigenous Sport Physical Activity and Recreation Council Premier's Awards for Indigenous Youth Excellence in Sport. Nomination deadline has been extended to Friday, October 9th. Canada Post reminds you to keep your dog secure. Please do not open the door during deliveries or allow your dog to approach Canada Post employees while they are out in the community. This makes it difficult to adhere to physical distancing and increases the risk of dog bites. Already this year, Canada Post personnel have experienced more than two dozen incidents with dogs in Prince George. Check out and share the video on the Canada Post Facebook page to help spread this important message. Thank you for tuning in and staying tuned to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. And now segment two of this morning's Front Burner from CBC News. I want to ask you a bit more about, you know, there's obviously the, these different accounts of what actually happened that night that the police killed Breonna Taylor in her, home, in her own home. Her boyfriend, Kenneth Walker, was with her at that time. And we know that it was a botch raid. But what does Kenneth Walker say happened that night? What Kenneth Walker says is that is this. It's March 15th, around 1 a.m. after midnight. He and Brianna are in bed. They're falling asleep watching TV. He basically says the TV is watching us at a certain point. Then they hear this banging on the door, this thunderous banging on the door. He and Brianna yell, who is it? Who is it? They get up out of bed. They get in the hallway. They're still yelling, who is it? Kenneth Walker has maintained both in the 911 tapes and his interview with police afterward that he never heard police say that they were police. That the next thing he knows... Police knock the door down. He's already got his legally owned firearm with him after yelling so many times um, of who it was. Police bang down the door. He fires a single shot, which hits Sergeant John Mattingly in the, the leg, severing his femoral artery. And then that's when the gunfire, the hail of bullets start. He and Brianna are on the ground. He turns. She's bleeding. And he calls 911. 911, Operator Harris, where is your emergency? I don't, I don't know what's happening. Somebody kicked in the door inside my girlfriend. Oh my God. And that's where basically she dies. That, that, Daniel Cameron said, the Attorney General said yesterday, uh, his press conference, or during his press conference, that she was killed by one bullet, actually, even though she was struck uh, six times in total. That's his account. Police say that they did announce themselves, that they did right. say they were police. Even though they had a no-knock warrant, they still knocked and, and identified themselves as police. There is one neighbor who said that he heard police announce themselves one time. Evidence shows that officers both knocked 
and announced their presence at the apartment. The officer's statements about their announcement are corroborated by an independent witness who was near in a proximity to apartment four. In other words, the warrant was not served as a no-knock warrant. Other neighbors in the apartment complex say they never heard police announce themselves. There's a deep level of distrust around the decision here to not indict any of the officers involved with Breonna Taylor's killing. And of course, we see it on the streets of Louisville and across the United States. You've touched on this a little bit, but but what else, what other specific questions do people have about the grand jury decision in this case that, that, that is fueling that distrust? Well, there's a lot. I mean, number one, did the attorney general uh, pursue tougher or stricter uh, punishment for the officers, or did he simply leave it at, at wanton endangerment? The demographics of, of the grand jury. Question... Such as we, don't, so we don't know the demographics of the jury, of the grand jury? No. Uh, Attorney General Daniel Cameron declined to identify those individuals based upon their race or gender. I know there's efforts to uh, ask the presiding judge about the demographics of the grand jury. Huh. Um, questions, for example, did Officer, former Officer Hankinson, if he endangered neighbors, how did he not endanger Breonna Taylor? Why didn't uh, the Attorney General investigate the issuance of the search warrant? which Taylor's family lawyers alleged in their lawsuit was obtained illegally or, or through fraudulent uh, means. Basically, the police lied on the search warrant. Because if that warrant was obtained fraudulently, the officers would have no legal right to execute the warrant and be there, uh, and that would affect the self-defense justification. So there are, Josh, a round of questions that people have about how Daniel Cameron conservative Republican, certainly someone who's a rising star in Republican politics, how he handled this case. Um, at the end of the day, I think it's just it's such a gut punch for people because there was an expectation after these 100 days of protest that something would come of this, that this was so egregious, this young woman, no drugs were found in her apartment, no money was found in her apartment, her sort of thin, flimsy connection to the main target of this, this drug investigation, a former boyfriend, there was really a feeling that this was sort of a perfect sort of case of, of, of abuse and overreach by police. Mm -hmm. But again, the attorney general's point is that police were acting in self-defense, and even by the police officer Mattingly, his own admission, they feel that they did everything right in their pursuit of, of this drug case. It's certainly, I think, a, uh, a call for larger reforms, perhaps, but it shows you how embedded, I think, it is this idea of can the system check itself? Because the point that I think a lot of legal experts were making to activists that they did, just didn't want to hear because of their own frustration and, and anger over this young woman's killing was, can police with a legally signed warrant be held accountable for murder in the course of their job as police? Um, and this is why I've always said, Josh, that more so than George Floyd, Tamir Rice, Michael Brown, any of the other more controversial shootings, Walter Scott, we've seen uh, in the country— Breonna Taylor's killing was an institutional one, hmm. from the investigation itself to this question of did gentrification play a role and why police were so animated in, in, in their pursuit of Jamarcus Glover, the focus of the drug investigation, uh, the signing uh, of the, of the no-knock warrant, do judges really overlook and, and review these warrants correctly? 
Um, why did you need a no-knock warrant in a situation with someone who was considered by police's own admission a, quote, soft target in the investigation? Mm-hmm. It's from top to bottom a question of how this system behaved and how it works and how it sort of operates in our, in our country. controversial parts of the grand jury decision is what you just alluded was spoke about was the state attorney general Daniel Cameron saying that the, the two officers who did fire their guns at Breonna Taylor were justified in doing so I mean what evidence did he point to to support this his his main thing is that look when police entered um, they said that they announced themselves as police a cooperating witness says they announced themselves as police they enter with a legally signed warrant and Kenneth Walker, her boyfriend, shot at them. Um, from Daniel Cameron's perspective, once Kenneth Walker fires his gun, police are defending themselves. Taylor's family attorneys will argue, or have argued, that look how many times those officers shot. And, and their argument is at, at the root, that the poison of the root was the way in which they obtained the war in the first place. When people say it's a tragedy, that word, I think, sort of masks the true conflict of our of our policies, our war on drugs here in America, and how police operate, and this sense of good guys versus bad guys. Uh, there are a lot of shades of gray in this story, in this case. So that word tragedy, Josh, I think doesn't encapsulate the true nuance and clash of these public policies we have here, and the question of if Breonna Taylor had been a non-African American person, would she be treated this way by the system? Are there any legal avenues left for the family to seek justice? Not for Breonna Taylor's family directly. Um, They, of course, already have settled the civil lawsuit. The criminal aspect is now complete. The only thing, the only hanging fruit that's still left out there is the FBI isn't investigating potential civil rights violations. such a focal point in the Black Lives Matter movement. You know, there are countless celebrities, Beyonce, Oprah Winfrey purchased 26 billboards calling for justice for Brianna. For months now, we've seen and heard protesters chanting, say her name. And, and of course, right now we're seeing protests right across America, not just in Louisville, in New York, in Atlanta, in Los Angeles, in Portland, just to name a few. And yet there have been so many cases of African-Americans being shot by police. What is it about Brianna's story beyond Brianna's death that has made her so synonymous with this broader call for racial justice. These other shootings or these other incidents, Josh, are often patrol officer, African-American individual clash, right? A phone call or someone looks suspicious, someone got pulled over for a traffic stop, someone's selling loose cigarettes, someone gets pulled over for uh, a bad license plate, whatever it might be, it's a sort of small infraction initially with a patrol officer that escalates into something. Hmm. You can point to a case like that and say, bad officer, bad training, bad apple, or you can point to the individual and say, this person didn't cooperate, they didn't comply, they didn't do what they were told, they have a past criminal history, they're a violent person. Whatever perspective you have about these incidents, it's boiled down to the officer and that individual. Breonna Taylor is not that. This is someone who had 
still a care and love for an ex-boyfriend who was an alleged drug dealer, um, still had a connection to him, still friendly with him, someone he, he still called upon when he was locked up. That's Rihanna Taylor's involvement in this case. Again, no money was found, stash money was found at her home, no drugs were found at her home. And that sort of idea of being having a cursory relationship to someone who might be a focus of investigation and for police, for the government to knock down your door and kill you, I think, has activated a different sort of response. Because now people who maybe go, well, I, who could go, well, I don't do anything wrong. I obey the laws. I'm a good citizen. I don't have to worry about these interactions with police. Well, Breonna Taylor was never pulled over. She never had a criminal background or history. And she's dead, right, at the hands of police and in this investigation. That's the part, I think, that has activated people, particularly African-American women, who are often at the crosshairs of these policies, what they're feeling like and why they're taking the lead of this movement in Louisville and really across the country. What do you think this this news now, uh, how, how do you think it will shape or push the conversation around fundamentally reimagining or, or defunding policing? Being black is exhausting. And if you know even a tenth of black history, whether you're African-American, an ally of it or not, uh, this doesn't surprise many African-Americans. It doesn't surprise me. Um, where do I think? I think that that movement will certainly stick around in some shape or form. I don't know if it will continuously be occupying the space that it's been for the past 100 days. I don't know if it will be continuing to shut down traffic or boycott certain businesses. I don't know if you can reform when the mentality is so embedded in police culture. But I do think that the American people are skeptical of outright revolution um, and, and overhauls like this of no policing or defunding the police or significant, significantly rolling back police department budgets out of fear of what that means on the other side, the unknown. So I'm skeptical if, if the American left will be able to convince average mainstream Americans that they can overhaul this system and it still be a safe uh, country. But I do know that's a conversation we're going to be having beyond just body cameras and, and chance of Black Lives Matter. There's a fundamental issue going on in our country with law enforcement and how to deal with certain communities. Philip Bailey, thank you so much for, for speaking with me today. Hey, no problem, Josh. Thank you. That's all for today. Frontburner is brought to you by CBC News and CBC Podcasts. The show was produced this week by Imogen Burchard, Elaine Chow, Ali Janes, and Shannon Higgins. Derek Vanderweyck did our sound design with help from Mac Cameron. Our music is by Joseph Shabison of Boombox Sound. The executive producer of Frontburner is Nick McCabe-Locos. I'm Josh Block. Thanks for listening. Back on Monday. On 93.1 CFIS-FM, that is this morning's Frontburner from CBC News. You can also catch Frontburner on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Stick around, we have the Friday panel and some hot topics coming up in a moment here on After 9. Hope Air is Canada's only national charity providing free travel and accommodations for Canadians in financial need who must access medical care far from home. Since 1986, Hope Air has provided more than 150,000 travel arrangements, nearly 10,000 in the last 12 months alone. Check out their services and stories, as well as ways to give and get involved through their website, hopeair.ca, and sign up for their national newsletter. Helping Canadians reach vital medical care, Hope Air. Visit them at hopeair.ca. 
www.seniorsresourcecenter.ca. The Seniors Resource Center at 721 Victoria Street has partially reopened. People can come to the center Monday to Wednesday between 10 and 2 by appointment only. Please do not come in if you are experiencing any signs of illness, such as fever or a cough, or have had recent contact with someone who is isolating. To book an appointment with the center, call between those same hours, 250-564-5888 or 250-552-2828. Seniors Resource Center, 721 Victoria Street. Open Monday to Wednesday from 10 to 2 by appointment only. Construction is underway to upgrade Domano Boulevard, where it intersects with St. Lawrence Avenue and Gladstone Drive. The operation will install traffic signals to improve access for surrounding residential and recreational areas, along with road safety for all modes of transportation. Construction is expected to be completed by the middle of November. Periodic traffic disruptions may occur. Motorists are asked to follow on-site signage and directions from road crews. Full details are available online at princegeorge.ca. Forecast for Environment Canada. Showers today, wind from the southwest at 30, gusting to 50. The risk of a thunderstorm this afternoon at a high of 11. Partly cloudy tonight, gusting southwest winds becoming light late this evening, a low of 4. For Saturday, a mix of sun and cloud, wind from the south at 20, gusting to 40, and a high of 12. This is After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. Good morning, welcome to the panel portion of... uh, of After Nine. I'm your host, Bill Phillips, on this wonderful, soggy fall morning. Um, and, uh, gee, there's not much going on this week other than a provincial election. Um, Herb, let's let's start with you. Uh, the, the question of the day is, is, why are we going to the polls next month? Well, I guess uh, Oregon wasn't comfortable with uh, the, uh, the, the uh, operating um, arrangement. Um and it and it's uh, I'm starting to be more sympathetic to them. Um, it, it was kind of razor thin, and there seems to be a second wave coming, and things are going to get tighter. I think uh, going 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 to get a new mandate at this point may not be a, a terrible idea, uh, unless he can't come through. I mean, if he it's, it's going to come down to him to redefine this uh, the mandate uh, or the the future mandate that the NDP want, and. Um, uh, he's got to do it in in, uh, in strong uh, terms, and he's got to convince people that um, uh, Wilkinson and the Liberals are not really an alternative. Yeah, Tracy, uh, same same sort of question to you. Why why are we doing this? I don't know. Um, <laughs> I'm pretty disappointed actually that we're going back to the polls, and that it's not for any lack of love for democracy. I I just have an issue with dialing up the partisanship in the midst of what's already a fragile social world out there right now. I don't see the need. I don't see the point. And quite frankly, I think reneging on a deal with the Greens is lousy behavior in any leader. There you go. Um, uh, Art, uh, that was one of the uh, the questions that, uh, or one of the points that, that Premier Horgan made when he announced this is that uh, going to the going to the polls now rather than a year from now would be would result in a year of uh, partisanship in, in his words uh, hectoring uh, that would go on so kind of like best to get it out of the way now and uh, and just go to the polls what time in history has partisanship hectoring not been going on come on now <laughs> that's ridiculous you know, he's going to the polls because he <coughs> thinks and he's i agree with him that he can get a majority now and that's what he wants and a year from now 
some of those economic consequences uh, of all the shutdowns might have us in rather tough shape and the population rather angry. And uh, his chances then of getting majority might be much less. I think he's looking ahead that way. I don't think it has anything to do with hectoring. Mm-hmm. And uh, and my apologies to everyone and certainly to the panel because uh, I was all excited about an election and I forgot to introduce who our panel was this morning when I, <laughs> when I started off. So I'm joined this morning by uh, Herb Martin, Tracy Calageros, and Art Betke. Uh, Eric Allen, who normally joins us uh, on these panels, is uh, is not available today. So uh, uh, it's just the three and 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 me. So uh, and we're going to talk about election pretty much all day unless we veer off into something else. Um, getting back to Herb, uh, other, will this be will this election be a referendum on COVID nineteen? They the, the parties don't seem to be talking too much about it just yet. Uh, but do you think that's essentially what it is on the provincial response to this pandemic? I don't. I don't think so. I think the. Uh the election is going to be won or lost on the policies that people uh, espouse. And no one really, I mean, the, the COVID-19 policy is, is being set um, pretty much by the civil service. Um, um, this is not, um, it's not coming top down from any political party. Um, we've got a, we've got a healthcare system in place. We're doing our best to follow their directions. And so far it's, hasn't turned out too badly, so I think um, what, what's you know it's going to be um, an election of ideas, and it's, I'm looking forward to actually seeing what uh, Wilkinson can come up with. Uh, so far, not impressed, but um, um, it's early days. Yeah, uh, Tracy, uh, liberal, leader, liberal leader Andrew Wilson has said he's going to unleash a bold uh, plan for the province. Uh, <clears throat> what? Uh, uh, what do you envision that that bold new plan might entail? I don't know. I'm struggling with the notion of anyone writing a plan at the moment that is useful for any longer than maybe five days. I, I know I'm looking at my own organization and trying to, to look ahead even into 2021, let alone looking for a four-year majority mandate. I, I have no idea how anyone could be writing a long-term mandate at this point. We don't know when we're going to come through uh, coronavirus. We don't know when the economy is going to recover and in what manner and in what sectors and where the harm and the pinch points are going to continue to be. So all I can see is someone trying to read the tea leaves, setting out a path that's going to look very attractive and very strong, but it's all going to go out the window if things change again. And if 2020 taught us anything, change is about the only thing we can count on. And so far, minority governments seem to be working provincially and federally. And that's with a good thing. Yeah, Art, uh, this this minority government was uh, was probably the exception to the rule in minority governments. It was, it, you know, we're we're just over three years in and uh, um, looking like it would held would have held to, together for the the full four year term. Uh, why why mess with that? Well, like I, I already mentioned, the next year might not be so good for them. Uh, you know, uh, minority governments usually, what, what's their average lifespan, 18 months, two years at most, or something like that? Something like that, yeah. Yeah, and uh, that's because either uh, the opposition sees an opportunity the, to, to win and brings the government down, or the government uh, sees itself popular, as in this case, 
and uh, takes advantage of the situation. Uh, the NDP were quite popular uh, even before COVID, and I, I would wager that Horgan was thinking of uh, calling an election uh, way back then, you know, probably last Christmas already he was thinking about it. So uh, it's, it's really just political expediency, that's all. Yeah, Art, uh, the, it's, it certainly is uh, some sort of, uh, 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 I guess it's political. It, it moves, it moves, or, sorry, I'm going to Herb here. <laughs> <laughs> Eric's gone and I'm lost. I don't know what's, I don't know what's going on here. Uh, what's that? Stay with the tour. Stay with the tour, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, uh, Herb, um as we as we uh, uh, move into this election, do you think do you think the the NDP or, or Horgan is is really um, rolling the dice here? Um, the the payoffs could be really big or really disastrous. Yeah, it, it's it's definitely a gamble. He's um, uh, it's going to be up to him to win this or lose this. He's actually even acknowledged that uh, he's going to take full responsibility for calling this election. I guess knowing that uh, it could turn out badly, um, but on the other hand, I mean, I've I've haven't been impressed by what I've seen with uh, Andrew Wilkinson so far, and uh, the Liberals don't look particularly organized, even on the local front. Uh, you've got uh, John Rustad uh, telling everybody that um, uh, the forest ministry in BC is uh, still in, has problems because it's not efficient enough. Um, this is at a time when uh, lumber prices are at um, Oh, I don't know. Ten-year highs. I mean, it's over a thousand dollars per thousand board feet right now. U.S. Uh, that's an increase of roughly three hundred percent since last year. Um, and there's still no no closed. So if the Liberals are going to tell everyone in the forest industry to tighten their their belts, um, they're going to have uh, they're going to have problems. I think chasing some of these votes, especially in Mackenzie. So the, I'm sure the words that are coming out of John Rustan's mouth aren't going to be the same ones that come out of uh, Mike Morris's. It's, it's going to be uh, it's going to be an interesting time around here. Yeah, um, but speaking locally a little bit, uh, I guess uh, Tracy, um, do you see uh, any change here in the, in the uh, in the ridings, certainly around Prince George and, and through the north? Do you think do you think any anyone uh, you know, we're going to send different people to to Victoria from any of these ridings? Well, the ridings that I'm most familiar with would be the, the two that share Prince George. <laughs> In my view, I, I don't see this being the opportunity to change that. I, I think really what the NDP may find with this election call is that they've hurt themselves with undecided voters that are in that sort of middle of the road, maybe center, center left don't have an obvious home in any of the parties here in BC. I've certainly heard lots of talk through the pandemic about how well people generally felt that the uh, Mr. Horton were handling this, and I don't see those same people enamored of the idea of an election. So the only place in our two ridings, really, where you could be shifting enough votes to send a different representative would be to the NDP, and I think they've hurt themselves with those undecided votes that might have moved. So no, I... A long answer to I don't think that Billy Bond or Mike Morris are in any danger of losing their seats. Art, uh, what are your thoughts of uh, of the local MLAs? Do you think we're, we're uh, 
I think all, all three of them, John Rustad, uh, Shirley Bond, and Mike Morris, all had over 50% of the popular vote last time. Um, that's Those are pretty healthy majorities, especially when you have more than one candidate running. Do you think they're still pretty safe? Oh, yeah. I, I don't see any change here. Uh, I haven't heard or of any um, really big upset people or concerned uh, issues that uh, would affect their... Uh, chances in any way it yeah um no they're they're pretty much safe you know uh, the the liberal party as a whole you know they're they are not uh, they're going to lose votes they're going to lose seats uh, but not in this area mostly that would be in the lower mainland vancouver island area uh, they'll the NDP will gain them there, probably at the expense of the Greens. I see one of the polls already that's out, kind of early, but it's out, have the, the NDP at 44%. That's majority territory. So, yeah, I, I think the election's pretty much already decided. There you go. Uh, and on that note, let's take a short break. Here are this week's announcements from Volunteer Prince George. The Railway and Forestry Museum is open Wednesday through Sunday. Both museums at Good Sir Nature Park are open and brimming with information and beautiful displays. And Parent Support BC offers weekly virtual grandparent raising grandchild and parent support circles via Zoom Monday through Thursday. For more information on these and other volunteer opportunities, visit volunteerpg.com or call 250-564-0224. If you made a compensation claim for abuse at an Indian residential school, the records of your claim are secure. They will be destroyed in September 2027 unless you choose to keep them or share them. To learn more, call toll-free 1-877-635-2648 or go to myrecordsmychoice.ca. On National Indigenous Peoples Day, local artist Kim Gucci released her reconciliation-themed live concert documentary, For the People. Two years in the making, For the People is a collective effort performed in front of an attentive and appreciative crowd at the Prince George Playhouse. Developed by Danny Bell of Mad Loon Entertainment, highlighting local Indigenous musicians in the spirit of reconciliation, For the People, a live concert documentary with Kim Gucci and Northern Sky. Check it out today through kimgucci.com or at youtube.com. Forecast for Environment Canada. Showers today, wind from the southwest at 30, gusting to 50. The risk of a thunderstorm this afternoon at a high of 11. Partly cloudy tonight, gusting southwest winds becoming light late this evening, a low of 4. For Saturday, a mix of sun and cloud, wind from the south at 20, gusting to 40, and a high of 12. You're listening to After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. Welcome back. I'm your host, Bill Phillips. And uh, we've been talking election, uh, election, election. Uh, one of the interesting things that came out yesterday about this election in a COVID world is that Elections BC has um, received 160,000 requests for mail-in ballots so far. And to put that in perspective, in 2017, they received 6,500 for the entire election. So three or four days into the campaign, uh, we're already at 160,000. Uh, Herb, do you think people are are looking at this as a as a safe way to vote in a in a COVID world? Yeah, I think it's it's a pretty common sense um, response, and um, it's actually it's uh, heartening. People are are wanting to go out and vote and do it safely. So it's uh, it's a good sign for democracy. It's a good sign for um, for this election. I think. 
Yeah, uh, Tracy, uh, do you have it? Are you going to vote by mail? Or are you going to trundle on down to the polling station? We talked about this earlier this week, and after I found out that you could do it by mail, I did my um, request online. I did myself and my husband took us less than five minutes on my phone to request mail-in ballots. I don't have an issue with going to vote in person, quite frankly, but I think that the ease of accessibility through a mail-in ballot will increase voter turnout, and I wanted to give it a try, never having done it before. Mm -hmm. Art, uh, what about you? Do you have any any issues with uh, voting by mail? I don't have any issues with voting by mail, but I won't do it. I'm just going to walk down to the polling station and vote as normal. Um, the only the one thing I, I suspect with this, because there's such a high number of mail-in ballots, uh, we might not know the final results for a day or two afterwards. It takes a little more time to get them all in and count them, I would think. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, actually, it'll probably be two to three weeks. Um, Elections BC said that uh, I think the process is... Um, they have to. They wait 13 days, and then they ship the ballots back to the ridings uh, uh, that they were, uh, that the person who voted was from, and then they count them from there. So, um, Herb, do you think that uh, we could be entering a territory of where we don't, especially if it's close, that we don't know uh, for a couple of weeks after the election actually who won? Yeah, that's definitely a possibility. <laughs> well, but it's. I mean, that's not. Um that's not new. The last the federal election, there was uh, we didn't know all the all the writings for up to I think it was up to two weeks. So you know I think we, but I, yeah I mean that's that's um, that's par for the course. Uh, uh, I think uh, that's just and and I think people are going to make allowances for that kind of thing uh, given the circumstances. Yeah, uh, Tracy, I think. Uh in 2017, it was it was quite some time before we <laughs> before we actually had a premier. So it, it, I guess I guess the province can run uh, uh, without a premier for a short period of time. And who do you talk to? We could run for a pre- without a premier for longer. <laughs> yeah. Realistically, I don't think it matters whether it takes six hours or a few weeks to get all of the results in. Government continues to tick along. We changed the elected officials, but realistically, we are sending people there because they're supposed to represent us in the legislature, not spend their entire period of time in service just electioneering and worrying about getting reelected. So whether the ledge is sitting or not sitting during the period where we're waiting for results, it won't make any difference with the office that is continuing to operate the province. Yeah, uh, Art, uh, do you think it's a problem that it, that it might take a couple of weeks to sort things out? Well, our elected representatives don't actually do the day-to-day running of the various functions of government. That's all done by the civil service, and they'll just keep doing their jobs. Uh, uh, I imagine they'll just, uh, if they can't get any direction from uh, a new government, they don't know who's it, who it is, they'll just uh, use the uh, pre-existing uh, direction that came down from them and will life will go on just fine without the elected representatives um, you know it, it, we don't uh, we, we, we don't have to have them telling us how to live or they don't handle day to day operations they just basically set the direction and the tone mm-hmm. so uh, yeah we'll do fine without them in office yeah um Switching back a little bit to to the results, uh, the NDP obviously think that uh, 
that they can form a majority. So, so her, where do you think that they they can gain uh, with such a razor thin minority right now? They only need to gain a couple of seats, two or three seats, and they can be in majority territory. Same for the Liberals, for that matter. But where do you, where do you think uh, uh, they think they can they can uh, make some gains? Well, there's, I'm sure there's uh, there's a few um, uh, lower mainland seats where they, the NDP just lost to the Liberals last time. Um, uh, you know, the the polls would indicate uh, that um, they might be able to grab those. And I think they're, you know, judging by um, uh, Horgan's attacks on uh, on the Greens, uh, they think maybe they can make some inroads there as well. At least, um, uh, you know, shape takes take some of the Green Party uh, vote out of uh, uh, contentious ridings. I mean, there's not that many Green uh, 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 MLAs, but um, uh, if they can if they can shave down their support a bit, they can take over those um, competitive ridings. So I think that's their that's their, their basic aim so far. Mm-hmm. Um, Tracy, the, the NDP are running uh, uh, former MP Murray Rankin in Oak Bay Gordon Head, which was the riding uh, held by uh, Andrew Weaver, the Green leader. Um, so that's probably one, I guess, that, that Herb was talking about, the, the, the target, the Greens. And, and what do you think the Greens' chances are of, of actually improving their lot in life? Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I'm thinking that my ability to predict for, uh, political outcomes is maybe suspect <laughs> in my view of former elections. <laughs> I, I didn't even think we were going to the polls this fall, quite honestly. But I, I'd be curious to hear more about why Art thinks that they're going to poll votes from the Greens to the NDP, because in my view, I really think that their new leader for the Greens, as well as the fact that the NDP have crossed them, really is going to lend more support for the Green pitch that they do politics differently. And I, I'm I'm not sure that I see growth in the NDP. I, I think that they may lose seats to the Greens and wind up with a very similar mix in the uh, legislature at the end of this. It all end up being a waste of time and money and increasing divisiveness that we certainly don't need. But, yeah, I'd like to know more about why Art and Herb think that they're going to pull from the Greens. Okay, Art, why are they going to pull from the Greens? Uh, because they're quite popular now. And uh, it, they might even pull from the, the Liberals, um, but they'll pull votes from the Greens because uh, they're, they're the people are, that would normally vote for Greens are quite happy with the way the NDP are handling the COVID thing or and uh, a number of other issues. So, uh, you know, when, when you got 44% support... Where is that uh, coming from? I think it's coming from the Greens. And uh, in in any of these ridings where you have a three-way split, uh, that's all they need to do is pull a few votes from either Greens or Liberals, and they've got it. So I think that's where how it's going to work. Art, don't you think that the Greens, though, can forward the argument that the reason the NDP have dealt with the pandemic in the way that they have is because of the requirement to work with the Greens? No. No. Uh, dealing with a pandemic doesn't require them to work with anybody except the health officials. I don't know that I agree with that. I mean, the whole point of a minority government is that in order to be able to advance legislation and, and retain support, you have to do that in a collaborative way. I haven't heard that they've been consulting with the Greens on how to handle a pandemic. I doubt that they have. 
And on that note, we'll take a short break. We can return Advocate to Advocate Life and Education Services is holding a virtual fundraising gala October 23rd. Former sports writer and professional golfer Kirk Walden will be the keynote speaker. Author of the powerful new book, The Wall, Walden has over 30 years of experience and influence advocating for women and children. It promises to be an evening filled with humor, vision, and hope. Advocate Life and Education Services Virtual Fundraising Gala, Friday, October 23rd. For full details, visit advocate.ca. The Elder Citizens Recreation Association is providing takeout lunches weekdays between 11.30 and 1. There is a different meal each day, and each meal is $6. Pie, when available, is $2.50, and you can get soup in a bun for $3. Frozen meals and soups are also available. Social distancing is in place, and masks are encouraged. Find the monthly menu on their Facebook page. Takeout lunches, available weekdays at the Elder Citizens Recreation Association on 10th Avenue between Vancouver and Winnipeg. Peg. Check out the Two Rivers Gallery Facebook page for trash and show creations past and present. This year's submissions are from Amelia Merrick, Christina King, Lisa Dixon and Corey Ramsey, and Janet Burgard. Due to COVID-19, the gallery was unable to host the annual trash and show, but creations for this year are eligible for submission to future events. Tune into their Facebook page tomorrow evening at 7.30 for a live Q&A. It's the Trash and Show Facebook Showcase from Two Rivers Gallery, where creativity flows online. The United Way of Northern B.C. has completed the final round of funding through Canada's Emergency Community Support Fund. The total allocated was $858,000 to 44 agencies and 55 programs across Northern B.C. The United Way of Northern B.C. continues to strive to fill resource gaps created by the COVID-19 crisis with their Maximum Impact Fund. To help out, visit unitedwaynbc.ca slash donate. More information is available at unitedwaynbc.ca. The United Way of Northern BC. Give. Volunteer. Act. Keeping you up to date on current news and events in and around Prince George. This is After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. And we're back. I'm your host, Bill Phillips, and we've been talking all things election. Uh, Now, we talked uh, a a little bit earlier about uh, the results maybe end up pretty much the same. Uh, Herb, if we end up with another minority government with the with the NDP possibly having a balance of power, what's going to happen? Uh, wh- do you think there will be another uh, confidence and supply agreement with the Greens? Yeah, I think it, it could happen. I, not, not the preferred outcome for John Horgan, that's for sure. And, it, you know, it'd be, it would be a surprise, quite frankly. I mean, the polling right now shows, uh, well, as of yesterday, showed the uh, the Liberals are down about uh, 11% in support. Um, the Greens are down only one from from the last election. Uh, so that you know would get, indicate that the uh, the NDP has got a, a fairly good uh, hold on it, and, and it's uh, it's really up to John Horgan to lose this thing. I think at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tracy, what do, what's what's your thoughts on on another minority government and and what can happen there, and whether the Greens and the NDP will continue to work together? Who knows? Um, I, it'd be pretty tough to sign another agreement with Mr. Horgan, given that he didn't honor the last one. If I was sitting there at the, the leadership of the Greens, I'd struggle with making that kind of a choice. You know, it's tough enough to build trust in this time of tribalism, um, but when you breach that trust, it's that much tougher to rebuild. Uh, and to look at governmental relationships with our many Indigenous neighbours uh, see that it's tougher to rebuild trust once it's shattered than it is to initially enjoy it. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, Art, do uh, you think the the uh, confidence to supply agreement uh, days are over between the Greens and the NDP, at least in the short term, and the, and that uh, uh, we could be... Premier Horgan sent us to the polls to try to create some stability and we could end up with actually less stability by a minority government that isn't bound by a CSA? Yeah, I agree with Tracy on that. I don't think the Greens will be too eager to sign another agreement after the last one was breached. Um, Yeah, I think we would just have a a normal uh, minority government with the the party in power uh, juggling things to try and stay in power and the but I don't think that would lead to an early election, you know, right after the last unnecessary election. Nobody would be eager to go back to the polls, so I think everybody would be careful just to keep things going for uh, at least two years uh, before anybody starts thinking of uh, either taking down the government or calling another election. I think uh, the people are, would be just had enough of, of elections for a while. Yeah. Um it it might be a little early, Herb, but uh, let's let's go around with predictions. Where do you, where do you see us uh, waking up October twenty fifth on the political landscape? Well, I, I think I'm. I think um, Mike. Uh, sorry, um, Andrew Wilkinson is not going to be all that stellar a performer. I think the debates will uh, sort of narrow the focus on this election to uh, the issues at hand. Uh, I think John Horgan is a far better speaker than um, and Andrew Wilkinson, and I think that'll that'll um, uh, basically uh, uh, put the put the election in a lock for the NDP. Uh, that's that's my prediction. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tracy, what's what's your prediction on the outcome uh, of this election? I see the Liberals losing two seats. I don't see it being a majority government for the NDP. I think we go back to a minority government where there isn't an agreement that is protecting the ability of whatever the minority leadership is. And in fact, it could be better for the North because I don't see changes in our Northern ridings. And so to give more strength of voice for Shirley and Mike and John within the legislature, even from the opposition banks, I think would volumes in terms of being able to attract additional funding and support and policy direction that would be more what northern and rural British Columbia is looking for. That's my prediction. John Horgan's still in the driver's seat, but on a really short leash. Art, uh, your prediction? I don't see any changes here in in our local ridings uh, or in the north generally. I think all the changes will be in the lower mainland. Uh, I think Horgan has a lock on a majority. I I agree with Herb that... uh, Wilkinson just doesn't have it. He won't do as well in a debate. He doesn't have uh, the same charisma that Horgan has. Uh, and uh, he's basically unknown. Like uh, like Eric said once, if it wasn't for the razor blade, he wouldn't even know what the guy's name was. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Um, we still have a couple minutes left, so let's uh, let's go up to the, north, uh, the Northwest for a little bit. And the NDP have... Uh, a star candidate uh, in Nathan Cullen, but there's controversy around that because of the uh, uh, diversity policy of the NDP. Uh, Anita McPhee from the Taltan says that she wanted to seek the nomination and being Indigenous and a woman, that she should get preference over uh, Cullen, who's uh, white and uh, male. Uh, Your thoughts on this, Herb? Well, I think... uh the story I heard was that uh, uh, she'd actually previously run for the NDP unsuccessfully and told the um, 
the NDP organization at that point that um, she was she was done with the NDP and would never run for them again. So uh, as a result of that, she was not approached. The NDP said they approached uh, numerous candidates, uh, potential candidates, uh, and did not include her because of, because of, of what she said. So it, it um, to me it has a ring of truth, and um, it's unfortunate. Uh, well, for her anyway. Um, but I, you know, Cullen's a, a great candidate, and I think uh, he'll be uh, elected overwhelmingly. Tracy, uh, what do you think? Uh, Horgan should watch his back because uh, Cullen's probably a likely successor. Do you think that's probably played into it? I presume that that is why Mr. Cullen is running again. He was very successful federally, and there was a lot of clamoring to have him run for the leadership federally for the NDP, and I suspect that he's looking to stay closer to home and in the same time zone, and that work through the, the provincial area would be more appealing to him. I mean, I don't know the man. I'm, I'm absolutely guessing from what I'm seeing in the news, but I think when you're talking about the, the controversy around him having that nomination, for one, the party's not going to pass over a candidate like Nathan Cullen if they have the opportunity to run him. I just I can't see that being reasonable for any party to do. My bigger concern around this, again, speaks to the trust that people place in the NDP. I mean, we have legislation on fixed election dates. We've ignored that. There is PAA policy for the NDP, which it sounds like was largely ignored, at least in this writing. But again, that would have to come out in the wash. And then the breach of agreement with the Greens. So you've got three examples, two for sure, of there being an issue around following their own rules. And I, I really think that their political opponents are going to capitalize on those particular issues. And the Greens in particular are in a perfect position to have Sonia first now really hammer hard on that. That's where I see votes going to the Greens. <laughs> Okay, Art, quick, uh, Nathan Cullen, yay or nay? Uh, he's in, but uh, all the controversy is because they get a little too involved in practicing identity politics. That can always come and bite you in the butt. Good. And on that note, uh, we're done. Uh, tune in again next week, and we will be back with more. After 9 is a daily presentation of CFIS-FM. After 9 is produced by Alan Wishart, Reg Fair, and Nathan Gita, with guest producer Neil Godbu of the Prince George Citizen. Additional contributors include CBC News and the National Campus and Community Radio Association. For a rebroadcast of today's program, check out the podcast link at cfisfm.ca. To provide feedback or suggestions for the show, please email cfisfm at yahoo.ca. You're listening to CFIS-FM Prince George, a not-for-profit community radio station broadcasting with 500 watts of power at 93.1 on the FM dial. CFIS-FM is owned and operated by the Prince George Community Radio.